Let's pod this. I am one of your hosts. My name is Andy Moore. It's good to be here with you, listeners. I hope that you've had a good week. As good as one can have in the midst of a global pandemic with a presidential election bearing down and uh, just 2020 does does not play around. Like every week, it is something huge and unexpected and on par. As a very small token of that, today I was trying to text Scott, I think, who is here. Hello, Scott Melson. How are you? What's up, dude? And my phone auto-corrected week to wreck. And I was like, something about this wreck. And I was like, that's very on brand for this week. So uh, so we're joined by uh, Scott Melson and also, as always, Bailey Perkins. Hello. Hello, hello. Thank you for being here. Of course. All right. So this week we... I, I, I sound upbeat, and it's not an upbeat thing, but Oklahoma has crossed 600 known deaths due to COVID-19. We are at um, a, perhaps a slight uh, downtrend in cases, but we're still up. You know, we've had more than 42,000 cases cumulatively, which is crazy. I should have gone back and added up how many cases since last week, because I think... I mean, I mean, it's going to be something in the neighborhood of like 5,000. Like, yeah, I was going to say 6,000 or so. 5,000, five, five, 6,000, something like that. Yeah. So, um, you know, that has really been a big focus this week. And I guess we can start there like we do all the time. I mean, that's what we're all doing. I had a, I had a meeting this week, an in-person meeting, which was uh, novel. Those are a thing still? It, well, you know, we sat outside on a patio with masks on, um, you know, an appropriate six feet or so away. And Andy, you only have to wear a mask when physical distancing is impossible. Did well, you know that? yes, but you know, between having a newborn and a uh, listeners another, don't don't listen to that. Wear a mask all the freaking time, please. Listen, That's right. Please wear a mask all the time. We have a, you know, I have a, a six month old today is Margot's six month birthday, and uh, also a family member who has just completed radiation, and so I'm not taking any chances if I can avoid it. But it was good to see, and I saw some friends. I was I waved at them from uh, across the patio, across the parking lot. It was nice to see people in person. It was ninety five degrees, and it was very uncomfortable in in multiple ways. But uh, this is the world we live in today. But was it also? I mean, like, and I'm I'm not being facetious when I ask this. Like, I mean, I get like being outside in ninety five degrees with a mask on, like it's uncomfortable and it stinks. But was it also like, like it's fine, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, yeah, it's, it's fine, totally fine. Like, if, if everyone would just do that, like, I mean, I think you're right. Like, we are looking, depending on exactly how you look at the data, so you can look at, you know, the seven-day average of new cases. Um, I think it's, for, I'll have to go back and look and see who tweets this out um, every day. But there's another way where you look at cases trending, but the cases are charted from the date of symptom onset, which is a different way of looking at the data than from the date of positive test. Right. Um, when you look at it from the date of symptom onset, it looks like we may actually be kind of sloping, sloping down. Like we may have actually hit a peak and, and starting to trend down, um, which roughly coincides with the, 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 the starting of uh, mandatory masking here in, in Oklahoma city and several communities around the Metro. And like, 
that's real like wearing masks, not going to large parties, trying to do as much as you can outside and keeping your like like kind of group of people that you're around pretty small. Like that's really all it takes. Like this isn't rocket scientists. It's everyone would just do it. And like and it would save lives. And it's saved right. Like life saving like, behaviors. It saves saves life. So if you can have a 30 minute meeting or however long your meeting was, Andy, if you can wear a mask and do it outside, fine. Have your in person meeting and enjoy getting to see somebody not over a computer screen. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> well, it's also important to know on the topic of COVID that next week Oklahoma will be getting a visit from a White House official. So White House coronavirus, coronavirus if I can get my words out, response hmm. coordinator Dr. Deborah Burks will be visiting um, to provide guidance to our state related to COVID-19. So we'll see how that turns out. Do y'all ever, yeah, do, y'all ever I, do that thing where like your friend is coming to visit and you're like, oh yeah, like I invited, I invited them to come, but then they're like, Oh wait, no, I didn't invite them to come. And then they were like, Oh, I don't know why. I don't know why they're coming. They're just, they're showing up. Cause that's what happened with Dr. Burks this week. It was hilarious. <laughs> if you watched, that doesn't happen to me, but go if ahead. You watched, if you watch the governor's press conference, they're like, uh, governor shit. Why is, uh, what's why, what, what prompted Dr. Burks's visit? Oh, well, uh, we'd, uh, I'm on calls with this group, you know, every week with the vice president and Dr. Burks and the coronavirus task force. And, you know, uh, we, we, since she's going to be in the area, we'd asked her to, to come see, you know, how we're, do, how we're doing here in Oklahoma. So, so you ever see you, you invited her? No, well, no, I think they just, they had wanted her to come because, because she's going to be, she's going to be in the area anyway. And by area, he means Nebraska. Right. And they're like, so, so Governor said, they told you that the reason she's coming is just because she's going to be there. Well, I mean, no, we haven't actually, we, we haven't been briefed on why she was supposed to come. It was like literally like a different answer to the same question, like three times in the space of like 90 seconds. I mean, is if you're the politician in that situation or whoever, right? Like, you are immediately confronted with the fact that you don't have a good answer to this question and you've got to come up with one on the spot and that doesn't always work out well. We've all been there, whether it's uh, in a political realm or on a first date or if you're talking to your mom, whatever it is, like at some point you're like, um, I'm just going to bumble this for a few minutes. Well, you and- have an answer, but, but sometimes- you can't say the answer because to say the answer would contradict the like misinformation that you've been spewing for the last month. Well, I mean... But sometimes the right answer is just we're looking to get more information and we yes. let you know once we find out more information. That, well, and that's the the funny thing. And I, I get that this is hard, having been in this position myself on a number of occasions. I mean, not identical, but similar. That when someone asks you a question and, you know, a tiny part of your brain is like, you know what I should say is just like, I should take a breath and be like, yeah. You know, we're happy to have the White House's help and leave it at that. And that would have been uh, probably a better response. But, you know, Bailey, you probably have been in this role, too. And Scott, maybe you get put on the on the spot with patience. Your brain starts racing ahead and you just start saying words. And then in the hindsight, you're like, dang it. I should not have said 80 percent of those words. What I should have just said is, yeah, she's coming. And, uh, you know, we. Hadn't really, we haven't worked out all the details yet, but we're excited she's going to be here and we'd love to show off how Oklahoma is open for business or, you know, whatever the, 
it's easy for us here, I guess, to say. It's easy for us to, like, armchair quarterback the situation when there's no pressure, no cameras on us, no, you know, we're way after the fact. Well, and we don't add that space for politicians to acknowledge that they don't have information or give them space to say we're learning more and we'll let you know once we find out what develops um, or to say, I don't know, just yeah. flat out. Right. Cause we expect them to know all the things about all of the issues and to be experts overnight. And so Andy, I think you raised a great point because that's something I've learned in my profession is the best way to build trust is to have the right answers and then to say, I don't know, but I'll find out if I don't know. And so I hope that we can expand that space for um, our politicians and elected leaders to be able to say, you know, I don't know, but I want to know more or I want to find out more information or I'll get back to you. And, and hold them to it. Right. Like it's, that's an easy way to dismiss someone and the, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding if you follow through on that deal. So you're both 100% right. However. <laughs> I was like, thank you. Well, it's, this has been a good episode. We'll see you guys later. <laughs> but I, I want to push back a little bit because I I don't think that this is, I don't think that this is an instance where the governor doesn't know. Why? I mean, maybe maybe Governor State has no idea why the White House has dispatched Dr. Burke to come to Oklahoma, but... I mean, I think the White House has been very clear that they're dispatching her because we're seeing a spike in cases and they're making some recommendations that we're not following. And she's coming to provide some Oklahoma specific guidance on things that we can and should do to try and bring our spiking cases under control. Like the White House has said that, right? However, but for Governor Stitt to say that would require Governor Stitt to acknowledge that we're having a spike in cases. It's not a plateau. It's not steady. We're not at the same place we were in June 1st when we opened up like... Like the the line has been for like the last six weeks, like, no, 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 we're great. We've got tons of runway, like everything's no, no spike here. We're at a plateau between 700 and 1400 cases. Like we're, we're at a plateau between this number and twice this number. And so do you, I mean, do you see what I'm saying? Like you're both, yeah. you're both 100% right that like one, we don't give politicians the space. Um, and two, it's really, really hard to try and come up with answers on the spot. And like, we need to have like, I mean, just in general, like we need to give people the space to say, like, I don't know whether that's like your doctor or your spouse or your friend or the governor or whoever, like, yes, I'm just, I don't know, maybe overly cynical (laughs) and question whether this is an instance where the governor like truly doesn't know Well, Scott, to your point, there's an interesting synergy with what the majority whip mentioned, Representative Clyburn, um, about their concerns that Oklahoma isn't following the protocols and guidance sent to them in the request that that committee recommended, but also the White House is saying we're coming down to provide you some some guidance because Oklahoma needs some support and, and, and getting a hand on these cases. And so, I mean, that that is a great point that there has been time to think through of this elevated attention Oklahoma has received um, from both sides of the aisle and from 
two different branches of the government. Yeah, I, you know, it is, I, I will say it is difficult in, in many cases if you are the leader, right? Especially if you are, I don't I've never been the governor, right? But like, I can imagine if you are the leader of the entire state, like you are, you in some ways are at the top of the pyramid here, right? Arguably, uh, at least in visibility. And you are confronted with the reality that like, Someone higher than you on, you know, a bigger pyramid is telling you you're not doing a good enough job and you need to, you need to fix it. And people are asking you questions and you don't have all the answers right then. And that's like a very tenuous situation where you, you're the mental calculations that are going through your head in that moment, um, are difficult, right? Like people say weird things. Um, you know, just like, you know, a lot of, uh, the left, uh, was given President Trump flack the other day yesterday about saying thailand instead of thailand i was like okay like it's easy to make fun of someone but i get it that if you look at a word that is spelled t-h-a-i the normal english pronunciation would be thigh right he's not i i don't i think that was a normal slip we've all said things i called someone by the total wrong name yesterday her name was amanda and i called her rebecca i don't know why like and, and it in was the just, grand scheme of all the things that are yes like important well, right let's, now, like yeah let's really not really let's not skewer someone for a, a minor faux pas now i mean and arguably like you know joe biden has gaffes all the time like and he's no. kind of known for that <laughs> Uncle Uncle Joe's never misspoken in his life, <laughs> not in the last like fifteen minutes. Um, <laughs> but like it is, and some of his are downright uh, painful. Like it's just, I it just is, wonder like for his national campaign, yeah. team, like how, how how do we? I saw get a meme yesterday with not just skewing what comes out. I mean, but the same thing with President Trump is like, right. yeah, candidates need to. Those campaign teams need to, to rally in the message. <laughs> I mean, full, full, full disclosure, I think we've talked about this on the pod before. I, I actually like, I really like Joe Biden. I voted for Elizabeth Warren. That is, that she, she was my choice, but I, you know, I like Joe Biden. But I did see a great meme. Um, you guys have seen Ocean's Eleven, the movie Ocean's Eleven, George yeah. Clooney, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon. So do y'all remember the scene when George Clooney, he confronts Julia Roberts' character in the restaurant? And he's figuring out, he's asking her, like, why are you with Terry Benedict, the main, like, antagonist? And, you know, she, she says, she says, I'm with Terry now. And he looks her in the eye and he goes, does he make you laugh? And she looks back and she goes, he doesn't make me cry. <laughs> I saw a meme going around yesterday. <laughs> this is me voting for Joe Biden. Does he make you laugh? He doesn't make me cry. That's funny. (laughs) Well, and it's it's so tough. You know, I have um, a number of friends that are either Republicans or or they were Republicans and now they're independents, and they have yeah been very vocal of just like, you know what, Um, I I I can't vote for Trump, but I also don't want to vote for Biden, and so like this discussion of like. Do I not vote in this? And I think that is a very significant decision that will have implications on the election, right? Because if enough people do that, well, it like it just affects turnout. That means that it it means that if you do vote in the presidential race, your vote counts more than it would otherwise, right? Like you have an outsized impact. So everyone, you should if you're listening, 
please vote in every race on your ballot. It is your voice matters. It's very important. That's a and it's real, another testament on like the flaws of a two party system is that it makes people feel like they don't have options that represent them, and so you either hold your nose and vote, or you don't turn out at all. And so, I mean, that's that's another one of those age-old civic discussions on what would it take to make people feel good about voting and make them feel like they are have the opportunity to pick a candidate that aligns with the things they believe in. Can we dig into that a little bit more? Because I, I was actually thinking about this because, I, Andy, I've heard some people say the same thing, you know, like, I can't vote for Trump, but I really don't want to vote for Biden. And I've, I've read some, some, you know, kind of punditry type articles like some you know there's one school of thought that says i mean i think first i guess laying out i can we all agree that the next president of the united states like barring something that we can't anticipate either you know this time next year the president of the united states is either going to be joe biden or donald trump barring like a you know a uh, god forbid like a death or something like it's going to be Joe Biden or Donald Trump who is the next president of the United States, right? Like it's not going to be the libertarian candidate. It's not going to be the green party candidate. And I have seen when Justin Amash was running, um, I saw some, some Republican, mostly Republican commentators that were writing, like people tell me that like, if I don't vote, if I don't vote for Biden, that's a vote for Trump. Like that's BS. I'm going to vote for Justin Amash because that's the closest to where I like align. And I'm curious what you guys think about that, because on the one hand, like I, I want people to vote where they feel like they, I want people to vote for what they believe in, but at the same time, like at what point, at what point, what does it take for to to have more than two options? Right? Like, what does it take? You know, like, is it, is it true to say if a, a vote to not, you know, to not vote for Biden is to vote for Trump or to not vote for Trump is to vote for like, is that dichotomy true or is there some utility to voting for a third party candidate? And I'm, and I mean, I mean this, like not just specific to this election and whatever the stakes are of this election. I mean, like in more of a macro sense, if that makes sense. I, I will say, um, I, I, just as a first thing, I think voters should vote for the candidate that they want to win, right? Absolutely. Like, regardless of who that is, I think you should vote. And I know that it's hard sometimes, and we all struggle with that, whether it's the president or it's your state representative or it's the sheriff or whatever. You know, your passion is important. Your vote matters. And so I also think that um, this issue, right, and this the same person that I had a conversation with the other day about their lackluster support for either candidate said like, this is what we get with just these two parties. And they were expressing their disdain for our current two party system. And I will tell uh, listeners and I'll link to this in the show notes, but there's a book about this. That's pretty interesting. Uh, It's called breaking the two party doom loop. um, The case for multi-party democracy in America by Lee Drutman. And I, I may have mentioned this before. I went to a, a event, a book signing thing with the author uh, where he gave an overview of this. And, and then it was moderated by um, David Brooks from the yeah. New York Times. It was very interesting. And 
the book is is I think interesting and compelling in some ways. And you know the the people that are most opposed to the idea of a, a multi party system are th- my friends who are the most partisan one way or the other, right? Like I had a conversation with two people yesterday who are, I will say, highly partisan Democrats in that they are, they have either run for elected office or they have been involved in races and they, I think, cannot help but see the world through this very us versus them, you know, right versus left, Republican versus Democrat duopoly in that worldview. And in doing so, it's, I think it's harder for them, it's harder for people who are highly partisan to be open to or to comprehend the idea of some kind of coalition-based government, similar to what we see in a number of other democracies around the world, but the United States has been this way. And it's ironic we're having this conversation because just yesterday I saw a meme with the quote from, I think, George Washington, but you can correct me one of the founding fathers about their concern about the two party system. Right. And like they were worried that America would fall into this and it would, it would result in this kind of um, harsh, uh, difficult split that we have today. Well, and we make assumptions too, that we don't have elements of multi ideals because within the two-party system there's factions within these political parties so you're seeing differences among conservatives who focus fiscally versus the tea party fundamentalists versus um in the democratic party you have your progressives versus um what they describe as far left. And and so um, what would that multi-party system look like and and how would it function in a way that gets you to um, a majority vote? I think what I would tell people is vote your conscience Um, because everyone, that's the beauty about living in this country, right? Is that everyone can make a decision for why they want to do the thing that they want to do and the way they want to do it when it comes to who they want to vote for. So if you do have the mindset that I want to have a strategic vote, <laughs> then then vote the way that you that you decide. If you say this particular candidate, well, I may not have, you know, a shot <laughs> at winning. There's just no possible way. But this person you know, really aligns with my values and vote your values if that's what's most important to you. And so I, it's an age old poli- like a, a politics conversation and, and political science question of what political system within a democracy allows people to feel connected and allows them to have true autonomy in decision-making and finding candidates that align with their worldview. Yeah. I, I, the other thing that's related to this, I think you made some really good points, Bailey. Um, the, the other thing that's related to this, though, is that there are systems, right, aside from just, like, finding good third-party candidates, there are systems or changes we can make to our electoral process that would make it easier for more candidates, not just 
third party, but third, fourth, fifth party candidates to compete, right? So you like can rank choice, rank choice, rank rank choice vote. That's exactly right. And I will open primaries would do this too. Yes. Do this. Yes. We, so a, a couple of plugs related to that. One, uh, our neighbors to the east, Arkansas, have two initiatives this year that they will be voting on in November that I'm watching closely because I'm interested in this kind of stuff. One that is uh, independent redistricting. So, of course, I'm talking to, you know, I'm interested in that. But secondly, the other one is a kind of a, a joint or a um, hybrid initiative about ranked choice voting and open primaries. It's like a top four system. And I haven't read the full policy yet, but it sounds very compelling. And I'll be interested to see if it passes and, and, uh, what that looks like. Also, Massachusetts, I believe, will be voting on ranked choice voting. Um, you know, Maine already has it, and I think this will be the first year that it is used in a presidential election. And and so, and Andy, before we go forward, can we define ranked choice voting for those? Yes, that please. Familiar? Yeah, uh, and so ranked choice voting is a system that um, you can vote, and you 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 vote your preference, like you rank the candidates. So you can you can vote for one. You can, you don't have to change anything. You could just vote for the one person you want the most. Or if you have people you're like, I like them the most, I like them the next most, and them the third most, you can do that. For example, if Oklahoma had this, and I guess this may be the case in Maine, you have the two major party candidates, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, and then you have these other third party candidates, right? Like so you've got uh, Kanye West, who apparently is running a campaign just to mess with Biden, according to the news this week. But um, let's say you liked... Trump the most, or let's say, let's say you like Kanye the most, Trump the second most, and then um, you don't like Biden at all, right? Well, you rank, if you have ranked choice, you'd rank Kanye one, Trump two, and then you just, you know, go from there. And if, if a candidate gets more than 50%, then they win. That makes sense. Like the majority of people wanted them initially. But if no one gets more than 50%, Rather than having a runoff or that kind of thing, the lowest person, they get bumped out and all of those votes go to the whoever those voters chose second, right? And so this would be, it, it's also called instant runoff voting. Um, and so in a race like the Oklahoma 5th um, District Congressional Primary for Republicans, where they had... 12 candidates, I think, right? Well, I think it was eight. Eight candidates? I, yeah. Um, either way, eight, 12. It was a lot. It's a great example where, like, right now they're down to a runoff between Stephanie Bice and Terry Neese, but we could have avoided a runoff and saved money by having a ranked choice system where you'd rank your favorite candidates in, in order of preference, and at the end, we would have a winner from the first election. So it's a, it is a cost-saving measure. I think it's really interesting um, and it and also affirms those whose first and, and second choice may not have been those top two candidates. Right. So that right. way, so if your candidate didn't advance, you still have the opportunity to weigh in, okay, who would be your preference to then have right. a say in the outcome? Yeah, the Democratic primary for president is another great example, right? Yeah. Scott mentioned that he voted for Warren. Um, I don't know who his second choice would have been, but if he had ranked them, like you have a chance of like even if your first person doesn't want doesn't win, maybe your second choice does, right? And so, um, in the end, you end up with more competitive races and you end up with better candidates. So you and I say better, I mean 
less extreme candidates in either direction, right? Because people are like, maybe I like Warren the most and I'm going to vote for her. But she's arguably one of the more liberal members of the party, right? Maybe they like Barney, uh, Bernie, <laughs> Barney, Bernie second. Um, but then the third choice is like, well, maybe I liked, uh, uh, you know, Pete Buttigieg. And so they vote him third. And so if Warren doesn't get 50%, or knowing it's 50% and if they get redistributed, then it, there's a chance that maybe your second favorite or your third favorite wins. And it's, it's like a, you don't waste your vote. You don't waste your vote. That's exactly yeah, right. Really wasted voting. I, yeah, I love, love love ranked choice voting. I love open primaries, which open primaries basically just means like rather than a partisan primary, it is like one primary and then the two top vote getters go on to the general election. So you can have a primary that results in a Republican versus a Democrat, a primary that results in two Republicans or a primary that results in two Democrats um, is, is another way you can do this. I would also say one thing that would potentially benefit um, or not, I think it really would benefit like third parties or fourth and fifth parties is the elimination of straight ticket voting, right? Where mm-hmm. you can't just vote for one party. But one thing that is a huge impediment to all of this, and I, and I don't know, and I honestly don't know, um, you know, you could make a case, I think, where let's say that you had a Republican candidate, a Democrat candidate, and a some third party, a libertarian candidate that caught the nation's imagination, right? And so now you have three viable candidates in the general election, right? Um, Well, now it has become dramatically harder for one candidate to get 270 electoral votes, which is what really determines who wins the presidency, right? We don't have a majority, a majority win system. We have an electoral college system. Um, And so what happened? And within that electoral college system, it's a majority rule. So I think that's another challenge that if the electoral college actually reflected the votes within that state. So let's say in an Oklahoma, you know, Donald Trump gets 60% and somebody else gets 40. Yeah. And then Joe Biden gets 40%. Then if we have 10 electoral college votes in theory, you know, six of them go to Donald Trump, four go to Biden. I think that would make at least people feel like a, a proportional allocation. Yeah. Yeah. But since we, but since we don't have that, don't. <laughs> what I think what happens and you know, if, if a lawyer wants to tell me I'm wrong on Twitter, please. So I can learn. Um, but my understanding is that if no one gets a majority in the electoral college, then the presidency is decided by the house of representatives. Um, and so you could actually make, you could make these reforms in an attempt to give more people the opportunity to vote for a viable candidate of their choice without being limited to the democratic party or the Republican party. And the outcome could be a less democratic mechanism Hmm. because the president would be elected by the house, not by the people, which is freaking crazy. I mean, it's just, it's just kind of, I mean, it's a little bonkers, I think, but. Well, and you know, you and I, uh, Scott often plug the 538 politics podcast and this, this week or last week's episode, they had one, um, and they talked about that where I guess the house picks the president and the Senate picks the VP, um, if there's not a, a winner. And so like, like Nate Silver said, arguably the, if it's a contested election, on election day, then really as you get closer to January 20th, it gets more and more clear about what has to happen because there are 
constitutional provisions for that. Right. Effectively on December 20 or January 20th, um, presidents, if who are, if President Trump loses, his term would be over and it would. Uh, well, I would say one thing. So no matter what happens, his term is over at 1159 on January 20th, 2021. Right. The question is like, he will, cease to be, he will cease to be president. The question is whether he gets to be president again or if it's somebody else. Right. Well, I mean, that's if he wins the election, you know, free and clear, then that's all these things are moot. But if it becomes contested, is what I'm saying, then then he then his presidency would end. And if it's contested on who the winner is, there are scenarios where the House picks the winner because it would or it would go. I think Nate even said, like, there's a there's a very, very low chance scenario where it would it would go to the line of succession, which means if if he and Pence are both out, it would go to Nancy Pelosi um, and, and I, there, there's no way the Republicans are going to allow that to happen. And so I was like, Ooh, this is deep in the weeds, but like also kind of awesome. Well, yeah, this is like, uh, you know, some episode of the blacklist where like something very obscure happens and they're having to invoke some kind of power in the hallway. And, uh, I can't see this happening, but it, it made for a very interesting podcast episode. Yeah, it's and just it's just of- really incredible how these processes established, you know, more than two centuries ago, you know, to prepare for these moments. And for the first time, you know, in our history, we're really having to grapple with what does this look like if we have to go to plan B or plan C in the way that it's been defined by our constitution. So from a political standpoint, uh, science aspect it, it's fascinating to think through what these scenarios could possibly look like yeah i remember being in college and like watching the news coverage of all the dangling chads and whatnot in 2000 in the that election and and just what a mess and being like i mean even then i didn't i was not civically engaged i didn't know anything but i remember like at work with the tv on and just watching them like hold up the little punch card ballots and thinking, why are we using those ballots? Like, why, why does Florida have this archaic system that is, even in the best of circumstances, like seems like a very bad system? Like, we didn't punch cards are what we used to control computers in the seventies, and the fact we were still using them for elections was bananas. So hopefully things have come a long way. But I guess we will find out exactly how secure our elections are state to state come November. Yeah. Yeah. And we can move on to something else. This is just something I've been thinking about, like, because I have had those conversations of people like, well, I can't vote for, I, you know, I'm not going to vote for this one, but I feel like I can't vote for that one. So I'm either not going to vote or I'm going to vote for some third party or I'm going to write in, you know, I'm going to write in Obama or I'm going to write in Reagan or I'm going to write in FDR or, you know, whatever. Um, and I just was curious what you guys thought about the like, and I, you know, I don't know what the right word is. What you, th- what you, which is what you thought about the, kind of the, the, the implications of, of that. I mean, it really is thinking about what matters most to the voter because uh, it is a reality that Supreme Court appointments or who leads different agencies, you know, like who leads the Department of Education or or who leads DOD or, or whatever the entity is, you know, is really determined by who holds that 
executive seat. And so there's so much power um, that comes with, oh, sorry, my phone. Um, there's so much power <laughs> that comes with that role. And so that's something voters have to think about and consider is, is that something that matters to them? Like what is the issue that will draw them to vote and what decision will they make? Because if, they, if you do vote third party, then that is a reality that like you have to accept is that if the person who ends up winning that and you don't and you definitely don't like that candidate um, has those positions of power that has generational impacts over time, especially when it comes to court appointments. So, well, yeah, I mean, I have uh, I have family members who voted for Trump in 2016. And did so, they were like, well, because they really didn't like Hillary. They didn't like Trump either, but they voted because of the Supreme Court picks and have since regretted the decision because obviously those picks are important, but they are one of, you know, thousands of decisions that the leader of the free world makes. And they were like, man, you know, they they approve of his choices, but the whole process has been kind of gross. And the other ramifications... Um, have really left a bad taste in their mouth. And so, you know, in the words of Alexander Hamilton, don't throw away your shot. <laughs> so we had a, uh, we had a listener uh, tweet at us this week and ask if we could discuss a statement uh, that the governor made in his press conference this week. So uh, governor Stitt was asked if he feels like Oklahoma, if there, if, if there should be a second stimulus package, you know, another cares act. And, uh, the governor seemed pretty uh, firm in his conviction that, uh, nope, we do not need another stimulus package. Uh, we got a 1.2 billion the first time and we should focus on getting that out the door and we're good. Don't need, don't need, don't need any more money. Uh, don't need to be, don't need to be just spending, spending more money. Uh, that received quite the, um, response on, uh, the Twitters and the other social medias. Uh, thoughts, you guys, thoughts? And this couples with the conversations that have been happening with prominent either Oklahoma leaders or, or, or wealthy Oklahomans on the conversation of whether or not we should have more unemployment supplements from the federal government as well. So both of those conversations have been happening at the same time of, A, do um, state and local governments need more stimulus money and B do um, those who are facing unemployment right now deserve that extra $600. You know, what do you guys, what do you guys think? Cause there's been a lot and, and there's, there's been a lot of talk about this, the extra 600 bucks a week in unemployment insurance. And there are, you know, I think there's pretty compelling economic data that shows that that has actually, that has increased um, like wages, like take home wages, you know, um, and that that has actually kept a lot of people afloat. But then there are also um, lots of employers that are saying, uh, my people won't come back to work because they're making, they're getting more money, not they're, they're more money coming in, coming in, staying at home, collecting unemployment plus the extra 600 than, than what, than what they would bring in to, to come back to work for me. You know, what do you, what do you guys think? What, what, what are thoughts? It's, I think it's a it's tough, right? Like anything like this, you're trying to make a policy decision that affects 300 million people, and it's clearly not a in one size fits 50 all. Fifty different states, right? With 
thousands and thousands of local governments. <laughs> right, right. And the different cost of livings, you know, between states and within states, right? And so, like, I have, uh, you know, as, as an example, like, you know, we received stimulus money like everyone else did. Very appreciative. Um, but we've been fortunate. My wife and I both are still able to work. And so, like, we didn't we didn't need the money in the same way that um, both, like, my sister and my brother-in-law or one of my brothers-in-law have, right? And so... I have a family member who is a who uh, well several who work in the service industry, which has been decimated. Right, like you close restaurants and bars, and you're going to have this huge impact because of their state unemployment and the federal together. They are receiving more money than they would have normally, um, but they're not stupid. Like we had this conversation, and they're like, "We're saving this money because." We're going to have to, like, this is not going to last forever. Like, they know how the government works. And they're trying to plan ahead a little bit. And, and it's Andy, not... there's an assumption, too, that folks are out here making six figures right. <laughs> on unemployment right. plus the supplement. And when we're talking about many of these industry jobs, many of them are already low-paying as is. Yes. And so people are probably experiencing um, feeling comfortable for a change more so than feeling like they can't keep up in the economy. Right. And so I don't think it's a fair picture that so many are painting that people are swimming in a cash um, bathtub. Right. <laughs> you know, right. They're a pool. Um, and it's really people are, are working to, get out of debt or um, yeah. not have to borrow if they had to borrow in the past or be able to be on time with their bills. Like. Right. I mean, I think, yeah, that's, so that's one thing that I think is a really important point that you're making Bailey is the like, you know, there's, there's on the one hand, I think there's, there's, there's two sides to the coin. And I, I honestly think that there's, there's some validity to, to both. Like one is that like, okay, if you're making more, like if, if, if folks are making more and experiencing like some degree of financial stability on their unemployment plus the extra 600 bucks, um, that doesn't speak to the fact that the unemployment is too generous. It speaks to the fact that they're not paid enough in their job in the first place. Right. Right. Well, right? and I was, but I was going to say the flip side though is like as an employer, right? Like, you know, I mean, I, I'm not an employer. Like I don't write anybody's paycheck. So I don't, I don't, I don't experience this myself, but like, I think that there are employers who are saying like, and I, and I, and I, and I'm not, and I'm, I'm not, I think that there are employers who really do try to take good care of their staff and they try to pay them as much as they can. And they're not trying to like take advantage of people. And they're, they're saying, I, I can't afford to pay my people an extra $600 a week. Like I think, I think that there are industries who 100% can afford to make up that difference and should, but I think that there are others who don't. Is that, I mean, is that, do you think, do you guys think that's right? That's right. But this money isn't coming from the employer. It's coming from the federal government. Right. And, and the other right, thing it's, is, it's not, but like, the, but it's not, it's coming from the federal government, but like, like I think that there are moving forward. Saying, Moving forward, it's going to be hard for me to get people to come back to work for me because they're going to take a financial hit coming back to work and I'm paying them as much as I can. I mean, at I I can see where that argument comes from. However, like 
try it, right? Like, if if that's the case, like let's let's talk about the degree to which the difference is, right? Because a couple of things, like the unemployment money that they receive from their state is less than their full salary. Anyway, it's about forty. Right? It's about forty percent of their full salary. salary right, right. So, <laughs> so you're, you're getting, getting about forty percent. I mean, just so, think about that for a second. If forty percent plus six hundred bucks a week is more than you like bring home, you know, I mean, like they're not like it's probably tight as it is, right? Yeah, yeah that's so. <laughs> I mean, so six hundred dollars a week is twenty four hundred a month. So that's thirty two thousand or something a year, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. um, so that alone is not a lot of money. I mean, thirty two thousand used to be like. When I started working 20 years ago, when I entered the the job market, right, like that was on the low end of what you'd make as a as a mental health worker. Um, but that was kind of standard. But that's 20 years ago, and yeah. the time value of money tells us that the that same wage, by necessity, should be higher. Um, and so, yeah, if it's that plus half of your other salary, so let's say you're making, I don't know, fifty thousand, and you're getting forty percent of that, so you're getting like 20,000 a year. So 20 plus 32 is 52,000. You're so coming you, out a little bit ahead, but not much. Slightly ahead, you're right. But about even. And the idea that unemployment is designed to help people like as a bridge, right? Well, that's in normal circumstances where there are other jobs available. Maybe that makes sense. But in the market right now, yes. those jobs went away and they right. have not come back and they may never come back. 100%. Or not for a very long time. Like this pandemic is going to have fundamentally different shifts than anything that any of us have experienced ever in history, right? Like it is, it is, we've talked about this a month, but it is propelling, um, you know, uh, working from home. It is propelling, um, uh, distance working all that kind of stuff like it is it is also forcing people to do more with less um, yes. and it is going to have very long-range implications for the job market and that means that some of these jobs aren't coming back and th- th- therefore we need to probably start talking about retraining <laughs> right like things that we talked about in 2008 2009 right when manufacturing tanked and we started talking about retraining automotive workers for high-tech jobs or for white-collar jobs. And no one is talking about that now because I think we as a country, at least, just keep crossing our fingers and hoping that the pandemic will be over one day, we'll wake up, and everything's magically the same, and we can continue on with our life. And that is just not what's happening. Well, this is kind of where I, I was wanting to go with the question because I, and I want to be clear, like I'm not making, I'm not, I'm, I hope I'm not, <laughs> I'm not trying to make the point that I think the extra 600 bucks a week is like too generous and it should stop. I'm not like, I think it's, I think it's was the right thing to do. And I think I think that to continue it is probably still the right thing to do. I'm just like, like kind of, you know, one of the things that's happening right now. And the reason that this question came up at the governor's press conference is because, you know, our representatives and, and senators, mostly our senators 
right now are in Washington trying to figure out what they're going to do. And this, un- this, this continuation of unemployment insurance, expanded unemployment insurance is apparently a major, major, major sticking point, right? There's parts of the, you know, there's part of the Democratic caucus that wants to see it go until like June of next year. There's part of the Republican caucus in the Senate that wants to be like, stop now. It's over. It's expired last Saturday and we're not going to renew it. You know, there are some hybrid models of like, well, maybe we do 400 instead of 600. There's, um, I want to say, um, there was a bipartisan couple, I forget who it was, um, that put forward a bill that was like, it was Mitt Romney and somebody. It might have been, it was Mitt Romney mm-hmm. and somebody that were like, we'll do 600 for another, like, two, you know, like another, how, like 600 a week for another, like, however long, a few months or something, but then it will be 400 and then 300 and then like it'll gradually go down. There's talk about tying it to the unemployment rate, which I think has huge problems because that doesn't just reflect how many people are in the workforce. It also has how many people are actively looking for jobs that aren't there. So that's, you know, I think so that's, that's one thing I wanted to, that's what I wanted to go with you guys is like, what do you guys think? You know, if you're the benevolent dictator of the world, what is the policy option? What are the policy options here that, to you seem to make sense. Well, Scott, one thing I, I want to note, like as we go into that, is the fact that it's disingenuous for Oklahomans to make the argument that it's preventing people from, that, that it's slowing the workforce or that it's slowing the economy um, because we're a right to work state. So if employers want to say, oh, you don't want to come back to work, they can say, well, you're fired, and then now you can't get unemployment benefits, right? And so it's not easy to qualify for unemployment in Oklahoma. And so it's really unfortunate and frustrating to hear this narrative that people are just trying to take you know, advantage of the system and just want to kick it at home and blow money when that's not the story of Oklahoma right now. And so that's- if there was a way to, if you want to talk about differences in cost of living, then design a bill that has a a maximum amount that goes to different places that take into account those different costs of livings. And so if you have a threshold for folks who live in Oklahoma versus people who live in San Francisco, that makes sense. But to say that um, the extra monies aren't necessary and they aren't helping people is just going to cripple our state's economy and not just Oklahoma, but across the country because now people aren't going to have that money to spend on their rent. They're not going to have that money to spend um, in tourism, and commerce, and, and, and all the other things that people need money in order to invest into the economy. So I'm going to mark you down, Bailey, as saying that Governor Stitt is wrong and that we we do need additional stimulus funds in Oklahoma. Andy, what are you going to say? <laughs> so I have, I have two thoughts. One is that I, I highly doubt that there are many people, if any, who would rather just take this like very marginal increase over their base rate of pay in exchange for work, especially after five months. Like anyone I know who's out of work and at home is like grinding their gears, ready to get out of the house and go do anything. Right. And so I hope that this will be like previous economic downturns that the pain of the market stimulate some entrepreneurship and really encourages folks to maybe get out there. And so if someone's, you know, maybe they're making a tiny bit more money than they were previously and that allows them the flexibility to like finally get that startup going they've been talking about or, you know, 
write that play or whatever it is that you're into, uh, that will be better for our, our economy and better for our country in the long run than, than you know, arguing about the, the money right now. Secondly, more importantly, I want to go back to Scott's original question and really the original question from Twitter that was posed to us about how we feel about Governor Stitt saying we don't need more money. Um, because I, I, I need to go back and read the quote exactly. So there may be a, a big flaw in my logic here. But I think what the governor was saying is we need to spend the money we have already before we get more money. Now, it is not the governor's job to decide whether or not we get money from Congress. That's Congress's job. But I do think we need to have a conversation. What's the holdup? Like, if the state has already received a billion dollars, where is that money going? And why isn't it flowing more quickly? Because there are people in need. And if if the if your thought, if the governor's thought is, we might need more money once we spend what we have. Well, we should talk about let's spend what we have. Like, I get the idea of like, because I've been in the situation where, you know, I was getting funding for a program. They were like, would you like more money? And it's like, well, let's make sure that, you know, we want to be good stewards of our money. And we want to make sure we're spending it correctly and efficiently. And we're getting the bang for our buck that we want. But if that's not happening, like if money's sitting in the bank or, you know, we're spending it on medications that are not proven to be effective, like, let's talk about that and find ways to spend the money then rather than arguing about somebody else's job. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like the focus of this conversation has been about what Congress should do when, like, there's also this, like, subtext of the state's sitting on money that we should we should spend somehow. I don't think the challenge is, though, figuring out where to spend the money and spending it in a targeted way, because there's a whole laundry list of organizations and businesses and, and Oklahomans themselves, residents who have ideas and ways that those dollars can um, go down to support um, eviction relief, to reduce homelessness, to increase our, our, our public health and add supports to our frontline workers, to um, supporting uh, food security efforts through food banks. And I mean, there's just a, a, a laundry list of ways that the government can spend that money. But it is also about the, the fundamental philosophies that the leadership brings into this space, because we do we have put our majority conservative legislature into a awkward spot of how do we spend 1.3 billion dollars quickly and if you fundamentally believe that government isn't the answer then you aren't chomping at the bit <laughs> to say we could put money here we could put money towards this we could put money towards that i mean one example with to a point you raised earlier andy that it depends on every state is different um, and we have all of these different governments that operate in different ways. Like Oklahoma County is struggling to spend the funds, not because they can't identify places to spend it, but because of the district attorney's interpretation of how the funds can be used and, and allocated. And so instead of being able to get the money out to the, you know, Oklahoma County, and city health department and getting it out to this this organization, this nonprofit, that state agency, whatever. I mean, I say agency, but county agency, whatever. Um, 
they're sitting on this money <laughs> because they're trying to figure out how they can legally spend it based on the interpretations that they've been given, right? And so um, I think that's one other challenge into the mix is A, the ideology of our leadership in spending government money quickly because when has government ever rushed into things that are related to money? It's rare. <laughs> so we're in a really unprecedented time where the federal government's saying, hey, take this money, spend it. And so we're having to retrain our brains to say we do have this money and we can use it to help support some needed things. I mean, because the governor constantly talks about wanting to be top 10 in the state. And one of the ways that we can become a top 10 state is making these needed investments that have been neglected for so long. And we have an opportunity to get a head start on that. But the, the answer is definitely not, we don't need the money. The answer is more so of, let's spend this money and then assess where we could use more money. Right. And yeah. so I'm just alarmed at the way that the question was answered as if we don't have to figure out how we got to pay for Medicaid expansion in 2021, or that we don't have to figure out how to plug budget shortfalls or um, figuring out how to maintain um, state agencies who have been, you know, cut, over time, you know what I mean? And so I, I, there's just a laundry list of needs to say that we don't need the money when we actually do. And, and you know, and this this year, you know, I'm, I'm going to piggyback you, Bailey, because this is exactly what, what I was what I was wanting to get to was that like, so one thing I'll say is the governor did say, I think yesterday, maybe it was this morning, I think it was yesterday, that he is, I think, shuffling around some 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 responsibilities to try and streamline these funds getting out the door quicker than they have thus far. Um, but a lot of a lot of the way that the money, this 1.2 billion, right? Like that's that sounds like a big number because it is, but a lot of that is like, I don't want to say like like it, it's not pre-spent, but it's kind of like pre-designated, right? Like there are certain chunks that go to municipalities like automatically, like they're earmarked. There's chunks that are earmarked for Oklahoma City because of our population, right? There are chunks that are earmarked that can only be spent on things like PPE. There are chunks that are earmarked that can be spent on, you know, ventilator. Like there's like, you know, you can use it on like only, you know, pandemic related costs, which are like substantial. So I don't know that you can use this like, like I don't I, I mean I would assume we have a billion dollars worth of COVID related costs maybe we don't but like I I don't know that you can take necessarily like five hundred million of this one point two billion and shove it at the education budget unless you're shoving it at the education budget in a way that is specifically designed to alleviate the effects of coronavirus by using like distance learning or whatever. And even if you do that, it doesn't fix the fact that we're going to have a huge shortfall next year because of how much lower tax revenues are. One, because of the price of oil and two, because of how many people are out of work. And so the idea that like, oh, well, we've just been given $1.2 billion. We don't need any more. Like my take was that's like, that is like the classic. I mean, you know, I get so frustrated and politicians on both sides of the aisle do this. I think they do it for different reasons, but like this, this like, refusal to plan for the future because to plan for the future would require me to do something that is either difficult or against my ideology like right now right like saying that we don't need a universal masking mandate because you know county x doesn't have any cases why should they have to wear masks so they don't have any freaking cases right like so they stay at zero you don't wait until they're overrun with the virus to put a mask mandate in place that's how you wind up with 
hospitals that are overstaffed, right? So we shouldn't be waiting until next May when we're going, okay, is it 15% across the board budget cuts for state agencies to try and save us a billion bucks before we like ask for help, right? We know there is going to be a huge, a huge hole in the budget for next year. We also know that local politicians, up to and including the majority leader in the State House of Representatives, are counting, or at least have been counting, on the federal government to fill a huge part of that hole, and so they should say so. And that leadership could, should come from the top, right? Like, um, from the governor's office, you know, to, to say, that, like, yeah, we're, we're going to need some help. Um, so I'm, to, that's a, that's a long-winded way of, just saying Bailey or I, yes, <laughs> I, I, that's a long winded way of saying I agree with Bailey. <laughs> well, and I, I think that's a very good point. Uh, you know, in my 10 plus years of experience dealing with federal grants, um, often, and I think I've said this on the show before, but we would often, we would get, you know, um, funding notifications of, funds that were available for, you know, our, our area, right. For HIV and AIDS, um, that we didn't even apply for. And some of my staff would say, why didn't you apply? And it's like, because those funds were like earmarked for these very specific things and they were time limited and we, there was no way for us to do it. And it was so frustrating because, you know, the feds might say, well, what do you need money for? And we could give a laundry list of things. Here's money for for this other thing, but funding was not available. (laughs) Right. Right. And, you know, and so we, you know, we would always try to come up with creative ways to do it, but it is difficult, right? Like, and, and in some ways I, I feel for the state because we're in the same situation where we need not just one-time funding, but ongoing funding, at least for a little while. And that's what we used to say with our grants is like, you know, one year of money is great, but it's hard for us to hire staff and get things rolling because so of how- So then have the, to fire those folks because you can't afford right. to pay them in year two. Right. Give me three years of money and we can talk like we I can develop a program. I've got some ideas and we can we have time to hire, train and implement this program in that amount of time. And, I, and you know, if the federal government would just say, I don't know, every state gets X amount of dollars per person as some kind of like big chunk and they give it. That's one thing. But every state's being hit differently. Right. Oklahoma's getting a double whammy, um, not just from the covid stuff of things shutting down, but it has that trickle down impact on the oil and gas industry and all of that. And so we are, you know, everyone has a a slightly different flavor of COVID impact than, uh, than each other. And it's, it is a difficult situation. And as we have said a million times, like these are unprecedented times. And the reason we don't have a good plan for this is because we've never been here before. We can, we have good plans for how we should respond to pandemics themselves, like the spread of the disease but each one's a little bit different and it has a different impact on the economy. And it's tough. This is, these are hard, hard things. So, and I mean, to, to what you raised, I mean, the, the conversation is not, we don't need the money, but rather congressional delegation, here's what we need the money for. And we don't need it earmarked for narrow things that won't help us get to sustainability. And so I, I hope that our, our leadership will move to having those types of conversations about sustaining the economy and not just narrow 
coronavirus relief, because <laughs> coronavirus relief means sustaining the economy. So I think you raise an important point about granting in that process to ensure that we have the flexibility to use it for the things that will help Oklahomans in the long term. Right. Related I mean, the, the flip... Some breaking news here from the AP. This is within the last like half an hour. Uh, a last-ditch effort uh, to revive collapsing Capitol Hill talks on vital COVID-19 rescue money ended in disappointment on Friday, making it increasingly likely that Washington gridlock will mean more hardship for millions of people who are losing enhanced jobless benefits and further damage for an economy pummeled by the still-raging coronavirus. The Dems basically wanted a $3 trillion, a $3 trillion package. The White House and the Republicans were looking at a trillion-dollar package. Sounds like Speaker Pelosi said, we'll meet you in the middle. We'll go down a trillion, you go up a trillion, which I can't even believe we're saying that words. Um, but they said that that was uh, the the White House would not meet them there. They, the Dems offered to cut a trillion out of their out of their package if uh, the White House would go up, and the White House said no. Yeah. Well, so in summary, no deal. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, the flip side uh, to what Bailey was saying is that if you just give a big chunk of money to the states without putting limits on what they can spend it on or earmarking for certain things, then you do run the risk that money goes places that isn't helpful anyway, right? Like that's a good point. like to PR contracts for the like former um, spokespeople and chiefs of staff for high-ranking state officials. Could be that, but a billion dollars <laughs> is a lot of money. Um, I mean. You know, but like it could go to capital improvement projects like roads and bridges, which we need, but that doesn't actually help the businesses and the people, you know, that need the money right now. So, yeah. or at the very least, there's ways that government can widen the parameters of how dollars can be spent that would be beneficial and would help expedite how states are spending their money so they don't have to spend so much time of thinking, okay, what services fit within these parameters for us to help meet these needs, all while thinking about the everyday day-to-day of running government and the business that needs to happen and thinking about going into the incoming legislative session. We're starting to run long, but one other bit of news that I wanted to throw out to you guys tonight. Are you all aware that apparently now in West Virginia, there is a plague of uh, cicadas that are being controlled by their zombies that are being controlled by a fungus that takes over their mind? Yeah, this is not a new thing. We've had we've had zombie cicada before, I believe. Really? I've never heard about it. So I thought it was I thought it was part of the fresh, fresh hell. It was a new fresh hell for 2020. It, maybe it was zombie bees. There was some other fungus was affecting some other insect a couple of years ago and controlling their bra- their brains. Okay, it's like murder hornets, zombies, cicadas, pandemic. 2020, what else you got? Don't show me. Please don't show me what else you got. <laughs> I guess we'll see you next week. <laughs> We've got five months left. Could be lots of stuff. Jeez, that seems like a long time. Yeah. All right, well, on, on the note of zombie cicadas, let's end there. Um, thank you, Scott, for being here. Hey man, I uh, I wouldn't miss it. Right. Bailey, thank you for being here as well. My name is Andy Moore, and you've been listening to Let's Pod This. Don't forget to subscribe and rate Let's Pod This on Apple Podcasts. Uh, help other people find the show. Um, the show is produced by Scott Bailey and me. We are a member of the Mostly Harmless Media Network. You can contact us on 
contact us on social media at Let's Fix This Okay on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can send us an email at podcast at letsfixthisok.org. We'd love to hear from you. Our theme music is called Rhino Funk by artist Sodown. Let's Pod This is a program of Let's Fix This, which is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that strives to educate and equip all Oklahomans to engage the government. We encourage you to get involved in any way you can. And remember, decisions are made by those who show up. Have a great week, everybody.